Welcome one and all to a very special Dice Company, where we're looking back at the individual characters who form part of the current team. Alex, would you like to tell us what we have in store today? Uh, this is the diary of Augustus Zeno, the finest man who has ever lived. Fantastic. Well, take it away. Diary of Augustus Zeno on the crossing from Cantioch to Athlon. Day one. Well, I am underway. Mother will soon know I am gone, but too late, I hope, to stop this ship. She might send fast boats in pursuit, I suppose, but I have been careful. Eight ships are to leave port this morning, and this is the least grand. She will not expect me to board a cargo vessel, less still one filled with salted fish and other delicacies of the common people. So, Athlon awaits. Now to find my quarters. Day two. I am to live, to exist, in a tiny room, little better than the crates that bear the cargo on this infernal boat. The vessel rocks awfully. It is quite impossible to eat, sleep or think. I can barely write. The sailors seem quite unaffected. Only the gods know how they manage it. Day four. I ventured to the wardroom today for the first time. It is reserved for the ship's officers, though every man aboard appears a filthy sailor, myself included, given the lack of washing facilities. Anyway, the officers are as follows. The captain, a small, quiet man called Dominguez. Odd choice for captain, in my view, but my view counts for little this far from the shore. The mate is the opposite, a gigantic, red-faced brute called Ruddock. We passengers, just four in number, also count as officers when it comes to accessing the wardroom, although it, like everything else aboard, boasts all the fresh air and daylight of the abyssal plain, I shall write of the other passengers later. Ruddock is shouting somewhere above, and I must lay down my pen to cover my ears. Day five. Sun shining, sea flat and smooth as a frozen lake. But all is not well. I mentioned yesterday that four passengers were aboard. Well, now we are three. At least, only three can be found. The fourth, a bony creature by the name of Neville, has vanished. The man had said nothing. He simply skulked around, fiddling with a thin silver ring on his finger, ever appearing in doorways and on stairs and gangplanks, sucking on hand-rolled cigarettes and never offering them around. Not that I would have wanted one, but what about the code of the ocean and all that? Anyway, beastly chap cannot be found, and Ruddock tells me he must have gone over the side and thence to the bottom of the ocean. Captain Dominguez held a short service to Mark Neville's passing. Perhaps more to stop Ruddock's clumsy search than due to any great desire to commend Neville to the heavens. Still, may the gods be with him, and with us. This ship seems to lag even in calm waters. I can only imagine how she might fare in heavy seas. Day six. Heavy seas. The ship fares badly. As do I. Day seven. I have managed to stomach some breakfast. Took it in the wardroom with the other remaining passengers, a dour woman who calls herself Lady Logan, though I cannot imagine what she's the lady of, and a charming young fellow called Sheringham. He is the one bright spot on this filth-encrusted slug of a vessel. He is tall and lithe, brimming with life, and always ready with a smoke or a cheery remark. He is a very constellation at sea, standing tall and straight, as everyone else tips and lilts with the whims of the waves. Sheringham has promised to try fishing, and show me a few tricks this afternoon. 
I don't rate our chances of catching anything beyond seasickness, but some jolly company and something to occupy the mind will be a welcome relief. Day 8. Caught nothing yesterday, but all minds have turned to fresh prey. We awoke to calls of murder. One of the crew, it seems, found a smear of blood and, well, a couple of fingers on the poop deck. The blood was underneath a rail, with the offending digits lying in a corner below that. As the crew and passengers are missing just one finger between them, a long-lost index finger on an older sailor, there could be little doubt that the flesh, blood and bone belong to our dear departed friend Neville. While the shout of murder seems a little dramatic, not to mention late, it has left us looking at one another with a degree of suspicion. I would certainly lock the door of my dreary crate if a lock could be found. As this cannot be achieved, despite my hopeful submission to the captain and the carpenter, I sleep with my rapier at my side and a dagger beneath my pillow. Lady Logan has demanded a crewman stand guard in her cabin each night. Good luck to her. I assume one of these sea creatures defingered Neville, perhaps to claim a ring, as I think he wore one, then pitched him over the side. Any foot that treads the boards outside my door is liable to land its owner in grave danger. Day 10. Captain Dominguez called a meeting today. We had each been keeping to our rooms, only scuttling out when necessary, and even then keeping our backs to the wall. The captain believed this meeting would clear the air, set our minds at ease, and various other clichés. Instead, various suspicions, most of them absolutely without foundation, were voiced. Lady Logan suggested young Sheringham had left his cabin, adjacent to her own, during the night before Neville vanished. Sheringham merely smiled at this folly. Ruddock, the mate, accused Lady Logan herself. His claim had even less basis, resting, it seemed, upon a feeling in his bones and the lady's apparent aversion to Neville before his disappearance, an aversion any sane person would share. The captain alluded to his own suspicions, but re refused to state them outright, insisting that he would present all evidence to the port authorities on arrival in Athlon. We must all strive to talk him out of this. Sailing to the Empire shores is foolhardy enough without presenting ourselves for scrutiny by the famous Bounders, or worse, the Shadow Vanguard. It's hard to imagine forces more likely to hold innocent men guilty. I wonder if the laws of the sea allow me to challenge the captain to a duel for command of his vessel, I might ask Sheringham, he seems the sort of chap who'd know these things. If mutiny be forbidden by honour and sense, we must hope our killer is unmasked before we enter Empire waters. I shall have to put my mind to it. Day 11. No joy as yet. Our killer proves as evasive as these fish Sheringham tells me we can catch. The captain is being rather obtuse, refusing to accept my assertion that the passengers ought to be excluded from any suspicion over Neville's death. It is surely absurd that I, young Sheringham, or Lady Logan could have played any part in such a barbaric crime. The captain blandly disagrees, suggesting any man or woman is capable of evil. My focus falls ever more closely on Ruddock. In retrospect, his noisy search for Neville's body looks like crude pantomime, the work of a man covering his tracks with the rough strokes of a broom. Perhaps it is time to unmask our killer. Day 12 I gathered the crew and passengers on the poop deck this morning. The captain objected, but I insisted and he gave way. With the crewmen all gathered, perhaps 40 sailors, along with the captain, mate, Lady Logan and Sheringham, I began pacing. Arms clasped behind my back, I set out the pertinent facts as I saw them. I will not recount my words here, but suffice to say it was a fine speech. No one uttered a word. They simply stood, rapt, awaiting my judgment. At last I came to it. The blundering ruddock, I said, that ruddy brute has killed poor Neville in a fit of temper, then cut the ring from his hand, taking an extra finger in the process. His bloody work done, he pitched his victim into the icy abyss and walked cheerfully away, whistling, a man without conscience or regard for the sanctity of human life. 
When I finished, no one spoke. At last, Ruddock himself broke the spell. I'll not have this, bollocks, he bellowed, stamping away to haul on ropes. I looked at the captain, expecting an order to clap Ruddock in irons. Instead, the feeble little man simply said, Your speech was interesting, but it contained little evidence. He paused, then revised his statement. No evidence. He looked at me for another moment, then turned away and disappeared below decks. Never mind, said Sheringham, offering a consoling smile and a cigarette. We retreated to the rail, and as Sheringham sympathised with my maltreatment, the cry of land ho went up all around us. I was surprised to find my spirits lift. While my careful investigation had been rebuffed as hearsay by the fools around me, I rather thought the captain would think twice about reporting the matter to the port authorities, now one of his own men had been accused. I retreated below decks and gathered my things, and returned to the deck to find Sheringham at the rail once more. We stood in amiable silence as the captain and crew guided us up to the harbour, Ruddock casting dark glances my way every so often. Damned shame about all this, said Sheringham, but Neville was an unpleasant character, so perhaps it's all for the best. What do you mean? I said rather too loudly, turning to face him. Ah, nothing, said Sheringham, shrugging and leaning on the rail until the attention of the sailors returned to their ropes. I just meant, well, you do realise Neville was following you. Following me? Yes, said Sheringham, now looking amiably exasperated. I mean to say, the man was an Empire spy in Cantioch. He saw you board this ship and spied his opportunity to deliver you directly into Emperor Salazar's hands. How do you... I know, said Sheringham, interrupting me, because I am a spy. And because it was obvious, but mostly because I am a spy. I am part of a small team assigned by your lady mother to... Well, I'm a little ashamed to say it, but our role is to track your movements to make sure you don't do anything... Incautious. Incautious, I replied, feeling my sentences shrink as my mind tumbled into utter amazement. That is to say, your sister slipped away and travelled to Athlon without warning. Your mother realised you might follow her, and indeed I for one was surprised it took you so long. Almost three years by my count. I merely opened and closed my mouth at this, reduced to a fish flopping helplessly on the deck. Anyway, Sheringham continued in an undertone, I spotted Neville at once, not least because my unit had sighted him before and suspected his allegiance. When he set foot on this ship, almost immediately after you, I knew for certain. I did not even pause to alert my superiors. No time. I simply lifted a purse from a passing merchant and stepped aboard. Captain Dominguez asked few questions, and I answered each with a coin. And Neville, I said, sounding rather hoarse. You, Sheringham glanced around. No choice, even if he refrained from harming you on the crossing, which he would have little incentive to do, given your destination in the very heart of the Empire, I knew he would bring you to harm upon arrival. So when I saw him strolling on the deck after dark, I saw my chance to remove the threat. And his fingers? I asked. Oh, pure accident, said Jeringham. He fought back, losing a couple of fingers in the process. Classic defensive wound, but one man's loss is another man's gain. Saying this, he flicked something small and silver and then caught it again, before slipping it into his pocket. Empire insignia, would you believe? Sheringham said, shaking his head. The calibre of their spies is almost insulting. I think dear old Salazar sees little to fear from our old continent. Perhaps we ought to change that, though. I studied him again, half expecting this endlessly surprising man to take flight or disappear in a burst of flame. I mean, my lord, Sheringham continued, that you should take great care in Athlon and find your way out of the capital as quickly as possible. I think we must part, lest we bring suspicion upon ourselves, but I will endeavour to look out for you, and encourage our agents and contacts to do likewise. He straightened his jacket, 
watching as the sailors cast ropes and began tying the ship to the dock. Thank you, Sheringham, I said, breathing deeply in search of my own composure. If Sheringham is your real name... Certainly not, he said with a wink. Farewell, and bear my words in mind. Leave this place, give no clue of your true identity, and be cautious in any letter you send back across the sea. What about you, I asked, thinking I should recommend this man for several promotions. Me, he said. Well, opportunity awaits. I find myself in the imperial capital, a chance not to be wasted. I intend to show what a malign agent can accomplish, if only he puts his mind to it. Diary of Augustus Zeno on arrival in Lunadine, capital city of the Kalian Empire. Day one. From the moment I set foot on the dock, something felt wrong. Voices chattered behind me, sailors preparing to spill into the city, presumably to spend their wages in taverns and brothels. I could feel eyes on me too. I fought the urge to glance back. I would show no doubt or weakness. I strode across the dock, though I had little idea where I was going. I had not visited Lunadine or any other part of Athelon since childhood. The foolishness of my venture threatened to swamp my mind. Few ships passed between the two continents these days, and the Empire decreed that all ships from Cantioch must dock here in Lunadine. So here I found myself, in the same city as Emperor Salazar himself. I had set out with a defiant heart, but now I saw how reckless I had been. Should anyone recognise me, or even suspect my true identity, my life would be forfeit. I slowed my pace, giving myself time to seek a destination. If I walked into a dead end or dithered too long, I risked attracting unwanted attention. At last, I saw a clean-looking inn, far enough from the port to be clear of my unsavoury companions from the crossing. The sign read, The Three Feathers, and I ducked through a low doorway and approached the barkeep. I need a room, I said. The man made a guttural sound I took for yes, then added, Five silver, two more if you want food and ale. I told him I would, proffered the coins and followed him. He led me up a creaking staircase, unlocked a door and shoved it open. To my relief, he departed without a word, leaving me to reflect on my next move. I looked out of the small window, observing a street busy with trade and bustle, chaotic but livelier than my home city of Gothamer. For all the horrors of Salazar's victory, he seems to have wrestled the ascendancy across the ocean. Looking from my window as I write this, I can see the turrets and spires of his fortress. My first thought is to bring it crashing down, to rush up and hammer the foundation stone from the great castle, crushing Salazar and those who serve him. But of course I can strike no such blow, and to walk near would be to invite capture, then a long time in a dungeon, or a short one on a rope. No, I must hold to my task. Aurora made this same crossing before me, heading for Roanoke, seeking information on the fall of the citadel and the fate of the Rojan. My path lies there too, trying to answer the same questions plus an extra one. Where is Aurora? Day two. I took my supper in my room last night, then slept uneasily. Half-seen figures weaved in and out of my dreams. At times, they seemed to call from the street outside, or even to stand over me in my bed. Ruddock, the burly mate from the crossing, barked my name, calling the bounders to capture me. Worse, the thin figure of Neville, killed on the crossing and thrown overboard, reached out with clammy hands. Whether he sought help or meant to harm me, I could not tell. At last, I abandoned sleep and spent the night brooding on the future. 
I risked breakfast in the bar in the morning. No one paid me much heed. The gruff barman remained at his post, doing little and saying nothing. My fast broken, I retraced my steps from the previous day. Leaving Lunadine is my immediate priority, so I needed to find a place overlooking the port where I could smoke and observe the pattern of the ships. I found a bench with a view of the river and the harbour beyond. I had to wait a moment while two sick-looking vagrants, with three eyes between them, vacated the seat. Once they were gone, and the seat rubbed with a handkerchief, I began my survey of Lunadine's shipping. I soon grasped the key points, then ventured to the harbour to inquire about booking a passage to the mainland. I went cautiously, listening to conversations and watching crews and captains before selecting a ship. I had heard a captain say he was bound for the mainland, so I walked up and asked whether he accepted passengers. He barely glanced up, dark eyes shaded by a prominent forehead, scoured with lines so deep they might have been scars. He said he would sail tomorrow, wind and gods permitting, and if I presented myself with ten gold coins, I could expect food, a cabin and a safe crossing. Relieved, I agreed and offered my hand. He smirked slightly as he took it, his skin rough as sand, then returned to loading his ship. Buoyed by my success, I walked back towards the Three Feathers. Evening had barely begun its advance, but I resolved to remain at the inn until morning bore me to the ship. That decision made, I drank an ale, then another. Safe at a corner table by the window, I began to enjoy watching the Empire's inner workings. A third ale found me, and a fourth, possibly a fifth, passed my lips before the sun sank and I rose to make my way to bed. The stairs were poorly constructed, dimly lit and uneven, but I navigated them deftly. Once inside, I locked the door and lay down, the motion of my sea voyage still unsettling my senses. I drifted quickly towards sleep, but something detained me on the threshold. Voices and vague visions troubled me, just as they had the previous night. Neville's hand, tinged grey and green from its time beneath the waves, reached for me once more. Time and again I felt myself falling, then woke with a jolt to sweat-soaked bedsheets. Aurora walked away from me along a woodland path, flitting among the trees, uncatchable. The voices grew louder, joined by bangs and crashes. Heavy feet thumped on the creaking stairs. Stop! yelled a man. I stumbled to my feet, drawing my rapier, staring at the door, still uncertain whether the sounds came from within me or without. Careful, innkeeper, came a low voice, real, menacing, and undoubtedly outside my door. You won't disturb my guests, the innkeeper replied, nor enter my rooms unless you pay for lodgings. A resounding crunch came in reply. A door kicked through, followed by a sleep-laden yell of alarm. My door remained untouched, but my brain had awoken enough to know who the intruder must be seeking. I shouldered my bag, sheathed my sword, and, trusting to the ongoing commotion in the hallway outside, favoured haste over stealth as I swung out of the window, hung on the sill, and dropped to the cobbled street below. The sound of my ungainly landing was covered perfectly by another crash from above, the sound of my erstwhile door surrendering to our enemy. I bolted across the road and into a narrow passageway and quickly lost myself in the city's web of alleyways. I turned at random, aiming for a route no sane tracker could anticipate. Satisfied that no one followed on my heels, I stopped in a lightless doorway to catch my breath and smooth my ruffled appearance. The sight of a well-dressed nobleman running pell-mell through the streets had no doubt attracted attention, but I hoped this seething city saw enough drunkenness and unpaid gambling debts to make my flight relatively unremarkable. I remained in the doorway for some time, and as the minutes flowed by, I began to fancy my throw of the dice had succeeded. Then a voice spoke, no more than twenty feet from me. He is here. He is close. My animal instincts assured me this was the same voice I had heard outside my bedroom door. Low, sinister, utterly confident. Denothlia! I yelled. 
instinct smothering all intellect, and sprinted directly towards the voice. I perceived at least two shapes as I bowled along the alley. I punched out with the hilt of my sword, winning a satisfying crunch as my fist connected with a jaw. And with that, for the second time that evening, I found myself sprinting at random through the very heart of our enemy's capital. Voices trailed behind me, all but one raised in agitation. Only the quiet, measured voice gave me any anxiety. That unease propelled me onwards, crashing noisily through the near-deserted streets, disturbing vagrants, drunkards and several automaton watchmen. None could match my frantic pace, so all fell instantly from my story. I once again darted into a doorway, heaving cool night air into my lungs. Grappling for composure, it struck me that young Sheringham, who had advised me to pass unobtrusively through Lunadine, might be somewhat disappointed. My cry of Donothlia now seemed extremely bold. The long night still lay ahead, and, having been discovered previously, I had little confidence that I could lurk here in the doorway. But where else could I go? As I assessed the unappealing possibilities, heavy steps reached my ears, not yet in this alleyway, but perhaps approaching it. Acting on instinct, I tried the door and, finding it open, slipped through. I stumbled down a staircase and into an underground warehouse. There, I met two men and an automaton.